God to bless our time. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that you have provided for us. We have this Bible in front of us, and some of us have it in electronic version, some in printed version, no matter what version you have preserved it for us. And it's for our good. It's for us to, to hear the words from you, the truth that we need to know to live our lives, to be able to navigate the circumstances that are in front of us, to, to hear ultimately what's true and to make decisions based upon that. And so we come to it this morning. We come to you knowing that you have kept it for us and that you will use it in our lives to teach us and instruct us. We need you to allow our minds to form around it and our hearts to to come in and under its submission and under yours. We need each other to encourage each other to continue walking this way. We need your spirit to reside in us and continue to, to carry this work on internally as well as in the way we live it out. So we ask that you would do that this morning, that you would be honored, uh, that we would be instructed and helped and transformed by this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, I would invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Haggai. The book of Haggai, um, I uh, mentioned last week, and some, a few folks told me it was actually helpful to give directions to the book of Haggai. You go down the street and you take a left. Or, no, actually, you go to Matthew and you take a left. Go back three books, go to Malachi, Zechariah, and then you'll find your way to Haggai. Two chapters, 38 verses. Uh, last week, this week, and then next week will be kind of trying to get our hands around this message uh, to this community uh, of Israel there. So I'm not going to finish everything, but we're going to try to do some today and then, and then do what we can next week to finish out this book. A little bit of background as you find your way to Haggai. That's helpful as we think about this book. This is the first book that was written, the first prophet that came to Israel after the exile. You might remember the 70 years of exile that Judah had been taken away by God's judgment to Babylon and under their rule for 70 years. And then upon God's uh, promise, as he fulfilled it uh, through the, the king Cyrus of Persia, as he came in to take over, um, he, he allowed, he, part of his policy was the, the rebuilding and reconstitution of Israel and certainly other nations, but especially Israel, back to their capital. And so they were sent back somewhere around 538, 539 B.C. to begin the rebuilding of the temple there. And so God uh, sent them to do that. God provided a way for them to return. And so this message of Haggai has come to them. It's the first part of it that we looked at last week. It was kind of a a wake-up call, and the passage we're going to read this morning is a kind of an encouragement as they began, they've begun the work of building the temple. And so we're going to read this morning from chapter 1, verse 12 through 2, verse 9. From 12, uh, 1, 2, 1, 12 to 2, verse 9. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of of the Lord their God in the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord then Haggai the messenger of the Lord spoke to the people with the Lord's message I'm with you declares the Lord and the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel governor of Judah and the spirit of Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest and the spirit of all the remnant of the people and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts their God on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. 
in the seventh month, on the 21st day, now we've gone about four weeks after that, 24th day of the sixth month to, to the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. O be, str- be strong, O Joshua, the son of Jehazadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when I came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. I mentioned that Last week, as we looked at the first part, the first 11 verses was a challenge that Haggai shows up and as, as God's messenger with, it, with a message for his people, he comes as really a prosecuting attorney with charges to bring against them. And he wants, there's kind of a kick in the pants that he gives them that God wants them to get. It's like the coach who says, you're not doing it right. You need to get this right. Okay. And, and so the first half is this is this wake-up call for them to realize how they've been living wasn't consistent with who they were. Well, the second half, this part we're going to look at this morning, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, the first was kind of a wake-up call. This is more of an encouragement. It's more of kind of a vision talk. It's an encouragement. It's the coach coming by and slapping you on the behind saying, come on, keep going. If I could give you that picture, well, maybe not. Anyway, some of you have that picture. Keep going. The other image I have in my mind is, is the movie maybe you've seen, Braveheart. It's William Wallace as he meets with his ragtag bunch of warriors as they're getting ready to go against the heavily armed cavalry uh, cavalry of of, uh, England as they're ready to go against them. And then you could see it in their eyes this kind of fear of what's in place, what's coming against them. And he wants to remind them of something that's more true. He wants to raise their eyes from the circumstances they see to see something that's more true, something that's real. And so Haggai comes with the word of the Lord to say, I want you to see something here. There's more going on than meets the eye. And he wants to encourage them so they can continue the work that God had called them to, the very work that they'd been stirred in their spirit to do something about. They find themselves at this point with maybe just a, a, a... a fair amount of discouragement as they find themselves there. And for each one of us, as we find ourselves in circumstances in our lives where God has called us to a place to do something, to, to accomplish something, we, our eyes are open. We find as we step out in faith that oftentimes the place that we're going is not exactly, exactly what we thought, that we're not as prepared as we thought, that we don't have what it takes to accomplish what God had called us to. Maybe it's to the mission field, the task there. Maybe it's into marriage. Maybe it's to a new job. Maybe it's to college in a place where you would make a decision where you would go. No matter what that is, you will inevitably find yourself at a place that is beyond yourself, beyond what you have the capacity to do anything about. And so at those points in times, we need the encouragement only God can bring. And as he speaks to them, he wants to encourage them 
that though the circumstances from their eyes look like it's much too great for them to be able to continue to move on, he wants to keep them going. Book of Haggai, as I mentioned before, a couple things that will be important for us. And if you missed last week, if you weren't here, first, the, the people, as they returned to the capital city to rebuild it, there, there was a great anticipation for what would, ha- what would happen in the rebuilding of the temple and, and the glory that would be there and prosperity and abundance. But they found it exactly the opposite, and they were discouraged even as a return. They began the building process but they only to stop and to abandon it. They had put the foundation in place of the temple. They had built an altar as well, but then they had stopped there and they began to focus on their own lives, begin to build and, and take care of their own lives and their own houses and their homes. And so Haggai shows up with a word to them to challenge them to say, do you not see this? What's wrong with this picture? That your homes are finished, that your homes are furnished, and God's house lies in ruins. And so in this first part, they, they're challenged to wake up and see the state of the temple that, God, that, that, that was in ruins and to see the state of their own houses and that this inconsistency didn't reflect well in who they were. And it's important to understand that the temple itself, as you understand it through the Old Testament, it was the symbol. It was a, a tangible picture or sign of God's presence, of who God was and where he resided with those people, with Israel. And so it being in ruins reflected poorly on their spiritual condition, that the state of the temple reflected on their spiritual condition. And so as you looked at that, you recognized there's something wrong with this picture. And so this is where Haggai comes in and the Lord comes and challenges them. We find that in the first 11 verses that their priorities are turned upside down, that they're seeking to find satisfaction in other places beyond him. And God will not have any of that. And he says ultimately that your lives are faithless instead of living faithful lives, instead of believing what's most important that you're seeking to live for your own comfort and your own convenience and you miss what's most important. And it would take eyes of faith to look at this rubble that was called to be the temple and to actually believe that something was going to be built there, something that would reflect in a positive and a profound way the presence of God. And so God calls him to consider their ways and to get to work into building the temple. In verses 12 through 15, was a passage where they respond. There's really nothing short of a revival that takes place. If you will, they've been living for years and years, not even seeing the temple. And all of a sudden, it's like their eyes are opened and they can see now clearly how they've been living. God's temple being neglected, their own houses and their own lives being focused on. And they realize, wow, what have we done? God has been so merciful that he would allow us to live like this. And then he would come and open our eyes so we could actually respond and do something. And so they see this. There's a revival that ensues in their own lives. They're filled with fear and awe of who God is. There's repentance. There's obedience. There's a great desire to get to work on somehow remedying this situation to do something about it. And so they, they step into the situation as God calls them to build a place that would represent him. And we see God's fingerprints over this whole thing as he calls Haggai with the word as well as he works within their lives. And the language, verse 14, is interesting where it says he stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and Joshua and of all the people, that he activated them, that he worked inside them to enable them to wake them up and see the situation and to respond. And so even what they couldn't see themselves, God enabled them to see he operated, if you will, inside them. So they began to get to work around the 20, said the 24th day of the sixth month, they begin to work on the temple. So 
Haggai shows up on the first day of the month, which was somewhere around the end of August on our calendar, 520. About three weeks later, they get to work in the temple the 24th of September by our calendar. And then we come to chapter 2, verse 1, and we're given another time stamp here, which says in the seventh month, the, fir- the 21st day, which would somewhere be somewhere around October 17th, 520. So about four weeks after they had began the work. Okay, they've been working on the temple now for four weeks. And they now Haggai shows up again with the message that God wants to bring to them. Now, it's important, a couple things, right? They started the work. They probably just began to get going. But in the middle of these four weeks, there's been three festivals that they have celebrated that, that the Old Testament, you can go to Leviticus 23, describes on the first day of the month, of the seventh month, it would be the Feast of, Te- of Trumpets. On the, on the tenth day, it would be the Day of Atonement. And then this period at which Haggai shows up is probably during the week or near the end of the week, which is called the the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. So he shows up during this period of time. And during these festivals, of course, the work stops. So they've gone four weeks, start, stop, start, stop. And now there's been a stoppage of work for some seven days as they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. And the feast, of course, recognized God's faithfulness to them because they would live basically outside of their houses in these little huts that they would build with, you know, palm branches or whatever they could make shift huts they would live in for this week in celebration of God's faithfulness to them while they lived, while their people were in in the desert in the 40 years of wandering. And so there's a picture there of that. And so the seventh month, here they are, they've started and they've had to stop for several festivals. And here they are, the stoppage as, as well as they've they ended. The other thing that's important about this month that kind of raises an emphasis on the very first temple and the glory there is that this would have been the month that they celebrated the dedication of the very first temple that Solomon built. So seventh month, this period of time, would mark the celebration, kind of the anniversary of the dedication of that temple. So all these things are going around. Their heads are starting. They're not getting very far. They stop for these festivals. In the back of their minds, they have this picture of the temple, the first temple, and all its glory and all of its splendor. And not to mention the fact that the very temple that they're working on now, some 17 years before, they had started only to abandon the process for other things. And so all these things are kind of at work in their lives. And so what we understand to be going on is as Haggai comes to them, as God sends them to him, is, is that they're in a point of discouragement. They've been working and got very, not very far at all that they're disappointed with the outward, with the work of their hands and what's actually taking place. And so he comes, God comes to, to them with this message to encourage them that they'd, they'd entered this mission with their eyes wide open. They're, they're, they'd seen now what they need to do. They'd seen the God who had called them to do this, seen the very state of their own houses and the state of the temple. They saw that they were the ones to accomplish the task, but as they began the work, they found that they didn't have what it took. And they were frightened. There's a kind of fear, and you see the language, fear not. It was fear, they were frightened that they would not be able to finish. And God shows up and gives them a message. And you see the three questions in verse 3. Three questions that God asks through Haggai. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? And you see there, the, the picture there is, is reflecting on those who had been there some 66 years earlier prior to the destruction. They had a glimpse with their own eyes of the glory and the greatness, the splendor of that first temple as it was built. And surely this was a a shared kind of memory that they would all share. They would understand the, the greatness of that first temple 
that God had, had, had met and come and, and, and actually with his own presence through fire had come and, and inaugurated and dedicated there that was. And so they had a memory of this. And then he goes on with two other questions. Who has seen this? But then also, how is it now in your eyes? And is it not as nothing? And these questions tell us something about what's taking place there. In the back of their minds, they have this glorious temple. In front of their eyes, they see a foundation they've been working on, and they've probably gotten not very far at all. And so you see that there's a comparison between the glory of the first temple and the splendor that was there and the very beginning stages of a very long work process with much work to be done yet, with very little tools and very little materials to begin to build. And you see that the weight of comparison between the first temple and this one, what they was called, was crushing down upon them. That was expected of them as they felt it was about to bring them to failure before they even began, or even as they did start to begin, that, that the weight of this comparison was undermining their motivation to the point where it was jeopardizing the work now just four weeks in. So they're discouraged, they're disappointed, and that's where these words come in. There's other passages you can read about the first temple that only kind of add weight to this argument to understand what's taking place. If you go to First Chronicles, you'll find there a list, First Chronicles 22, a list of the resources, the materials that they used. And it's amazing, it's astounding. Virtually millions of, pound of pounds of gold and millions of pounds of silver were used to to overlay the entire surface of the floors and the columns of the the temple itself. You can see the cedar panels and all the materials that were used in this process. And as they looked at all they had was wood and stones. They had none of the precious materials that the first temple would have had. And so there's this fear of failure even before they began. They, they, They lacked what was necessary as far as they could see to actually build something that would be worthy of the God that they were serving, worthy of the God that they feared, and they desired greatly to build something that would honor him. And so Haggai comes, all that's introductory, all that, all that Haggai comes in this situation, and he speaks to them, and there's three things he wants them to know, three things he wants them to understand that will encourage them to give them this kind of William Wallace kind of, I want you to see this. Don't look at the circumstances, but look at something beyond the circumstances. I'm going to hit two of them this week, and the third one we'll look more extensively next week at. The first of all, he wants them to hear something. Secondly, he wants them to grasp something. And thirdly, he wants them to see something. So as they, as he wants them to hear, to grasp, and he wants them to see something. What does he want them to hear as Haggai comes and he comes to speak? And it's interesting, even as we read Scripture, we have these very words of God. Haggai would have spoken to them. What they needed to hear was simply the message that God was with them. That as they were in the midst of these circumstances, that God was with them. If you look in verse 13 of chapter 1, the message of Haggai, the message of the Lord that came through him in a real particular kind of way is this. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, and it was this. I am with you, declares the Lord. I am with you in this venture as you go forward. My presence is with you. In verse 4 of chapter 2, The same message comes after the command to be strong. The three times he says, work for I am with you. He reminds him again of his presence with them. And he goes on, I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your presence. And so God wants them to hear these words. They get it twice. I am with you. Another time, I am with you. I am with you. 
The same God who was with you as you came out of Egypt. The same God who had established this covenant with you, this promise that I would rescue you through incredible works out of Egypt. The same God who would bring you up to the Red Sea and by my power provide a path for you to get through. By the same water through which you were rescued would destroy your enemies. The same God that would lead you into the desert, that would provide food for you to eat. The same God that whose presence was seen in the pillar of fire and the cloud to guide and to lead. That this is the God that they were to serve. This was the God whose presence, who is with them even now as he embarked on this seemingly impossible task of building a temple that would even come close to reflecting God's glory and his greatness. So he says, I'm with you. And he is according, and we understand this covenant that he's made with them. And the picture there of, of all that he had done for them, he wants them to recall the same God who was with them is with them, with, with his, their previous, their ancestors is with them. But then he goes on to say, my spirit remains in your presence, in your midst. Fear not. So the parallel idea, God says, I'm with you. And then he says it in another way. In other way, he says, my spirit remains with you. My spirit is present with you. And again, we understand God's spirit to be his presence, to accomplish his work in and through his people. So God's presence is with them. It says, you don't have power. You don't have the strength to do this. But my spirit will enable you to accomplish what I need to be done, what I call you to be done. So this is the God who is with them. Another aspect of this God who is with them has the, comes in the form of the title that is used throughout this, this text. I mentioned it earlier when I read Psalm 46, and it's the Lord of hosts. Some of your Bibles are translated the Lord Almighty. That this particular title seems to be used extensively in these texts of Haggai and Malachi and Zechariah and after the exile. It's used also in, a, in the texts that we have that are during the exile. So that while they were in exile in Babylon, that this title, the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty, is used to a greater degree than the rest of Scripture. That it's used extensively in this period of time as they found themselves under the control, under the subjugation of Babylon and then under Persia. That this title became important to them, became exceedingly important to them and was used throughout In Haggai, it's used 14 times in 38 verses. The Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts, 14 times. For those of you who like statistics and these kinds of things, in Jeremiah, it's used 77 times, in Zechariah 53, and Malachi 24. The Lord of hosts. This is used three or four times in the passage we just read. The Lord of hosts is with you. And the question we need to ask is, what exactly does that mean that the Lord Almighty is with us? Of course, the word itself tells us something about that, right? The, the image, another way it's translated is the Lord of armies. The one who is in charge of all might. If you have military might, you have all might. You are in control if you have that kind of power. And so the one who is in charge of all armies is the one who is with them. The Lord of armies, the Lord who is the one who rules over all things, all space, all time, the entire universe, that he is in control of great and small. He is the one that even is in control of the very fact of the armies that brought them to destruction, that carried them away in exile. He is in charge of those very armies that destroyed the temple, that destroyed the, the city, that carried them away, and then that also that brought them back. God is the one who's in charge of all these circumstances, these situations, that he is in control in our lives as well, in great and small. There's not a 
an atom, there's not a, a cancer cell, there's not a, a solar system that's outside of his control. There's not a legislative action, there's not a, a wildfire, there's nothing that is outside of his control that he isn't in control of. We're reminded of that, and if you happen to hear Doug Nunke's interview with Fox News, there was a kind of rest that that reality brings to God's people that he is in control Doug, as he shared with Fox News about the the tragedy, of course, but yet the rest that he could have in the reality of God being in control even of these things. But there's an irony in the use of this title, right? Why is it used extensively in a period of time when it seems to be inconsistent as it relates to Israel's circumstances? Why is it used now when it seems exactly the opposite is true? Why would they use it so pervasively, so extensively during this period of time it seems to be used when it doesn't seem to match the reality of the circumstances of Israel? Well, it makes sense, right? It's in those times exactly that that title would need to be understood and applied to the lives. It's exactly in those circumstances in our lives that we understand and get a hold of who God is and apply it to our circumstances. Say, and in this case, they're realizing, they're reminding themselves that this is the God, the Lord of hosts, the Lord who is in control, who is in charge. He is the one who has rescued them from Egypt. He is the one who has rescued them from Babylon and restored them back to this capital city. He is the one who has redeemed them, the one whose spirit is at work inside them to accomplish his work and his uh, mission for them. And it's from him that they need to hear these words of promise, I'm with you. If they're going to continue, if they're going to be able to finish the work and not be overcome by disappointment or despondency, or discouragement, they need to hear these words of God, the Lord Almighty, saying, I am with you, I'm present with you in the circumstance. They need to hear it ringing in their ears. Their hearts need to be filled with it. And, of course, Scripture carries this picture of God's presence from beginning to end, but throughout different places. We sang about it in Isaiah 43, in this future sense, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you go through the fires, I will be with you. And for those of us who happen to be in circumstances that we go, hey, things are fine. Guess what? That's going to change. And the promise is that he will be with us, and we hang on to that truth. I read about it in Hebrews 13, directly related and applied to financial circumstances and the ability to live freely without being bound and enslaved to our stuff. It's bound and tied to his presence in our lives. And so they needed to hear the truth of God's presence. We need to hear these words as well. When he says, I am with you, I will enable you to keep going and to fulfill my task, my mission. A number of years ago, there's a a picture I have in my head. I've used it at different times. But when I was in staff with Campus Crusade, um, our family led a trip to uh, Mexico. A number of trips, actually, throughout our our time. And a great opportunity. It was a missions trip. And we led students with us. Well, in, in one particular trip, there was a guy that came along with us named Jason. And Jason was a young believer. And he wanted to come and Love to have Jason. This is why we love to have Jason on the trip. Jason was a, a former Nebraska football player, uh, and he played defensive end, and he was about six foot five, and he weighed about 290 pounds. And I loved having Jason with us, you know, wherever I went, right? You love having a guy like that with you, especially when you're traveling through Mexico. As you fly into Mexico City in the airport, you're just converged on by lots of people. And my message, my words to my request of Jason was, Hey, Jason, when we, when we walk through the airport, would you just stay close? 
to my wife and my kids? Would you just kind of just stay near them? Just kind of be around them when we're walking through. As we pass through <laughs> the airport, would you be with them? Would you just kind of be there? And it was just a great picture. You get six foot five guy and walking. Nobody messed with him. Right. And then I remember going and exchanging money a few times and I would say, hey, Jason, what are you doing? I need to go exchange some money. And and of course, Jason, would you just kind of walk with me? Come with me and we when I go exchange money. OK, you know, six foot five, Jason, five foot seven, me. I like that picture. But more than that, OK, this image, it's, it's a great picture. More than that, Jason had this eastern accent and he used to he used to he'd say, I, I got your back. You know, I, I can't do it like a good easterner could, but he'd say, I got your back. And his presence with me, with us, reminded me of a kind of security. Same message, greater person that we have here, that God says, I am with you. When you go into these circumstances, as you look, do not be discouraged. Don't be dismayed, because I and my presence will be with you. The the Lord of hosts is with you. And so what they most needed to hear, what we most need to hear is that as we find ourselves in these kinds of circumstances that are crushing down on us, where the expectations of what's demanded is much greater than what we can bring, and to hear the words of God when he comes and says, I'm with you, don't be afraid. Well, the second thing, what another part of the message that comes first is his presence. You need to hear, secondly, you need to grasp something, and it comes in the form of these commands, three commands to be strong. Be strong, O Zerubbabel. Be strong, O Joshua. Be strong, Oh, you people of the land, a command to weak, selfish, demoralized people to be strong. It doesn't seem to make sense that he would show up, that Haggai would come and say, be strong at the very moment, at the very time when they realized they were not strong, comes the command to be strong. What do we do with this? How do we understand this command? First of all, we read about it in Joshua chapter 1 in our reading earlier where the same command three different times comes to Joshua. Be strong and courageous three times. We understand at the end of that that it was Jesus, or God says, be strong and courageous for I am with you wherever you go. It's also we see the same command that David gives his son Solomon as he's beginning to embark on the task of building the temple. Be strong and do the work. Be strong and do the work of building the temple. So we understand that the strength that God gives, the, the strength they're supposed to have, takes on a certain shape or form of a task that's in front of them. It's not some sort of just abstract strength that I'm just strong in and of myself. It's strength for a purpose. It's for a task. It's for something that needs to be done. And so as, as they realize this task is to be done, as Joshua, Joshua realized that he was to take the place of Moses, as Solomon realized he was going to build this temple, as they here realize that they have been called to, to build, to rebuild the temple, it's a particular task that God says, be strong and promises to provide what they need. The strength that would be necessary for building this temple. Mind you, it's not just physical strength. It's not just physical strength. It's a spiritual strength. Because again, think about their situation. Think about them as they look at what they desire to do. They look at the materials they have. And they look at the temple as it was before. And they go, how on earth are we going to do this? We have very few resources and yet our desires to do this. So they need spiritual strength, faith to believe that God would enable him to build this temple that would reflect his glory, that would reflect who he is in some way, though they have very little to build with that would reflect that. And so there's a call there in the command to be strong. They need to have faith to believe. And so the command was given to these who are weak and selfish 
They've realized that for 17 years they've lived in the, you know, in the shadow of this temple that's in, in ruins. They have done nothing about it. And yet God comes to them and commands them to be strong. It's reminiscent of a, of a command and a, a promise that is given to um, Gideon. If you go to Judges chapter 6, there's a, a picture there of Gideon as, as he is in he is in a wine press and he's threshing his wheat and he's hiding from the Midianites. He's, he's afraid of them and the angel of the Lord shows up to him, shows up and says, the Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. The Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. Here he is hiding out in this wine press and you get this picture as you read it, you know, he kind of, you know, he gets the message and looks behind him and saying, is, are you talking to me? As God says, be strong that they would realize, are you talking to me? Because they had come to grips indeed with not their strength, but their weakness. And they had seen it perhaps more clearly than they ever had, that they were weak. And the task before them was much greater than that they could accomplish. So this was what God wanted in the grasp, that God was with them and that he would enable them to do this, that his strength was available to them. Now the question we need to ask is, where, where does that come from? How does that strength come into our lives? How does it come or flow from God to us? It's not a mechanical formula that this strength that we are to live out comes one, certainly by the presence of God, because anytime we have a command of God close by will be a promise. Just as in Hebrews chapter 13, as we read earlier, so here the strength that they need to have comes, is connected with, associated with the very presence of God. He says, be strong and do the work, for I am with you. My presence is with you. That God, as he commands them, he will support them with his presence in their lives. That he will enable them to do this, indeed to be strong. It's a command, but as God commands, so he endows, so he gives the very thing that is necessary to fulfill the promise or the command that he's given them. So he promises that. New Testament has a variety of different variations, the same kind of theme. Strength isn't something we work up. It's not something that we have. It's strength that comes from him. Second Timothy 2, 1, Paul writes to Timothy and he says, Be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strengthened, not in yourself, but in the grace that comes from Christ. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10, just before the passage where we're told about the armor of God, we're told that, that Paul says, Be strong, be strong in the, in the Lord and in the strength of his might. The strength of God for us. How do we apprehend it? How do we apply it? We see that it's from the promise of God that he'll be with us. It comes through and by virtue of faith. We trust that as he has promised to be with us, so that true, the truth of that promise will be exhibited in our lives as we step out in faith, that we apprehend, we grasp the truth of our, the strength that comes from him as we appropriate it by faith, as we experience his strength as we use it. As we step into the situations and trust that God will meet us right at that point in time that his strength will be seen. God has chosen, set it up such that we are the conduit through which he is going to accomplish his plans. That his people will be the conduit through which he is going to do that. And so his power must come through us. We don't have the strength, but it comes through us. He could have snapped his fingers and the temple been done. But he didn't choose to do it that way. He chose to do it through them. And as they stepped out in faith, as they trusted, this would be something that God would accomplish through them. They could move forward. God's presence with this was with them, and they could continue because by faith that he would meet and give them exactly what they needed. 
in spite of the circumstances that appear to be opposite of them. So they need to come and see that their own weakness, their own inability, their own lack of resources they had was an opportunity for God to display his power, his strength in and through them. But it wouldn't happen until they stepped into it as they moved. There's a great picture in the book of Joshua. And the the picture is that as as Israel is beginning to move into the promised land, they have to go through the Jordan that's at flood stage. And as it's at flood stage, they, they line the people up and the priests are in the front and then the Ark of the Covenant and then all the people behind them. And they come right up to the Jordan that's at flood stage. And, and Scripture tells us as they step, the very souls of the priests, as they stepped into the water, it was at that point that the waters parted and allowed them to pass. It wasn't until they had stepped in by faith did God display how he was going to take care of them. And the same thing is true for us, that his faith is present for us the moment that we exercise it, that his strength will be an operation through us in that period of time, that the work, their work in building would be by his strength that would accomplish his redemptive plan through them, that he would, they would build this temple, that it would accomplish what God wanted, that it would reflect his glorious presence and at the same time would demonstrate his power to be at work in and through his people, that what they didn't have he would supply for them that he would be sufficient. Another picture that I have running through my mind is a, another image of, of how this operates in our, in our lives. And it's a, a metaphor for me that, that kind of continues to, to inform how it is that, that we trust God and yet work at the same time. And the two go together. We trust and we work. We move forward and we trust that he'll provide as we go. We don't sit and do nothing. And the picture's like this. It's a number of years ago. Again, Cameron was small and we were hiking in Colorado. We were up, he and I, we were on some rocks and kind of scrambling around. Anyway, we're in a situation, a position where it was not necessarily safe. And so I reached out and said, okay, Cameron, take my hand. These days I'd be saying, here, take my hand and take care of me. But then it was me holding him. And I'd reach and take a hold of his hand. And I realized in that scenario as we're, we're hiking, walking, and all that kind of thing, that, that his strength to hold and grasp my hand wouldn't be sufficient to secure him. It wouldn't be enough. That what would require his grasp of my hand in, in an even greater degree would be my grasp to hold his. His strength would, would be first, and then my would follow, would enable him, would, would provide the security that was there, perceivably, go with me with this analogy, that I would provide that. And so his grasp of my hand revealed faith. At the same time, it revealed that I was able, was capable of upholding him, of, of giving him what he didn't have. The holding on was the work. The grasping was the work. And in the holding on, you experienced the security, the strength that would be provided. And the same is true the strength as God works in and through us is the same for us. The gap between what we have and what we need is virtually infinite. We have something to bring. He's given to us, but it's not even close to what we need. And God says, as you work, as you go, what you don't have, and as you go, I will give you what you need. As you hold on to me, so I will hold on to you. So my strength will be seen and perfected and manifested as you trust, as you move forward, as you go, that my grace and my strength will be sufficient. But only as you move into it, you will experience and see who I am. 
that he has established that our work, our faith, the, the effort in moving forward is an integral part of his plan. But he hasn't left it just to our work. He said, I'm going to meet your work with an infinitely greater power supply to take care of you. And so we see with they, what we need to grasp is that God's power is available. His strength and the command is there to be strong, but it doesn't come from within. It comes from his ability to meet us and be sufficient as we walk in those circumstances, into those situations, we experience him in a way. And so you see faith in this way is not a mechanical kind of thing. It's not X plus Y equals Z or whatever. It's not just do these things. It is know me. It is relational. As we trust him, we know him. As we trust him, step in, step, and we see him provide, we go, oh, he's able. Oh, he's the God Almighty. We remind ourselves of the truth. And we know him. And as we know him, we trust him more. We're able to walk through it. So it's relational. And the strength comes by virtue, if you will, of that knowledge of him that he has given to us. Two things they need, two things we need. We need to hear the words of this God who is the Lord of hosts. I'm with you. I'm present with you no matter your circumstances. And this power will accomplish my plan. Be strong, but this strength through which you're commanded will come through me. And by faith, you'll experience, you'll appropriate the strength that I have provided for you. And you will know me in a way and experience me in a way. And for them, as they realize this would be a pattern of life because they're four weeks now into the building. It would take five more years before they would finish. It wasn't something that would happen overnight. It would take years and years of rebuilding something. And they would need to continually be strong. They would need to continue to be reminded of God's presence in their lives, that he would accomplish his work. And the work that God is doing in us and through us is the same kind of way. As we hear his voice, as we entrust ourselves and find that he's able to strengthen us, we will experience that and be a part of what he is doing. The final point that I, I'm going to pick up next week is that we need to see something as well. There's something immediate about their circumstances, but there's something even beyond that, that they need to see what God is doing on a cosmic scale, on a transcendent scale down the road. And next week we're going to take up this, the picture of what they need to see to be able to continue. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how grateful we are of this truth. I confess uh, it's hard sometimes to hear your voice, to hear uh, that you're present in my life. I confess as well that there's sometimes I feel very strong in and of myself, and there's many, many times I am full aware because you have revealed it to me how weak that I am, and indeed we are. I pray, Father, that this would be an encouragement to us, that we would not be crushed by the circumstances that we're in, but that we would indeed be able to trust you, that we would hear your voice that reminds us of your presence, that we would be reminded of the truth in the midst of those circumstances of that you are the Lord of hosts and in control of all things, and that, Father, we would be strong, not because of anything that we have, for we know we do not have that, but by faith we would experience and see you and come to know you in a profound way. And through us you would work in the building of your temple to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. I would ask you to stand as I come to the benediction. Um, Benediction, again, reminds us that it's this power comes through our knowledge of him, but also reminds you that the, there are elders, will be elders available to pray with you if you need after the service. Be up here in the, in the front of the, the service.
God's word to us is this. Receive this. Hear this. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who's called us by his own glory and goodness. To him be glory, church, both now and forevermore. Go in peace. 